Hello, everyone, and welcome to another edition of Radio Free Acton, the official podcast of the Acton Institute dedicated to the study of religion and liberty. My name is Caroline Roberts, and on today's show, we'll first be featuring an interview between Acton editor Reverend Ben Johnson and Philip Booth, professor at St. Mary's University Twickenham in the UK. They'll be discussing what's missing from the Pope's 2015 encyclical, Laudato Si. If you would like to learn more about the subject, you can read Philip Booth's article, Property Rights and Conservation, The Missing Theme of Laudato Si, which appeared in the most recent issue of Acton's quarterly magazine, Religion and Liberty. You can read this at acton, A-C-T-O-N, dot O-R-G. Then on our upstream segment, host Bruce Edward Walker will speak with British jazz legend Norma Winstone on her contribution to jazz in her newly released album, Descansado, Songs for Films. So without further ado, let's jump into it. Welcome to Transatlantic Intelligence. I'm Reverend Ben Johnson. If you were to ask almost any European leader about the content of European values, preserving the environment would rank close to the top. EU leaders believe that we need to reach beyond national boundaries to save the environment from catastrophic climate change through wise multinational policies. Even the Pope has entered the fray, with Pope Francis writing his 2015 encyclical Laudato Si about the environment. My guest today, however, says that something is missing from this conversation, namely how private property rights can help advance environmental protection. Philip Booth is a professor of public policy, finance, and ethics at the largest Catholic university in the UK, St. Mary's University, Twickenham. He is also a senior academic fellow at the Institute of Economic Affairs in London. He's calling us from London. Philip Booth, welcome to Transatlantic Intelligence. Good morning. Particularly, we'd like to discuss your article for the winter 2018 issue of Religion and Liberty titled Property Rights and Conservation, the Missing Theme of Laudato Si. Having you on the program reminds me of the words of another British economist, William Foster Lloyd. In an 1833 essay, Lloyd came up with the concept of the tragedy of the commons, the idea that if things are held in common, there's no incentive for anyone to take care of things. In some of your writings, you trace this back far into the past in Catholic social teaching. In your essay in the magazine, you bring this down to the present. Can you tell the listeners of Radio Free Acton why private property and private property rights facilitate rather than hamper conservation? Okay, yes. Um, Thomas Aquinas really hinted at this when he gave various justifications for private property. And one was that if something wasn't owned, it wouldn't be cared for. A great deal of the Catholic social teaching tradition has been based upon the importance of private property. Now, interestingly, not just Pope Francis, but also Pope John Paul II and and, um, possibly Pope Benedict as well, have sometimes talked about the need for an exception to the general rule of private property in order to preserve environmental goods. And Pope John Paul II um, was quoted in Laudato Si by Pope Francis, um, and this was actually the only reference in Laudato Si to property rights 
um, at all. In an encyclical, which was actually about the environment, and a lot of it was about the economic and civil institutions which were necessary to promote a cleaner environment. Now, this is strange because most of the economic work that's been done, and certainly most of it has been done in the 1990s and 2000s, and more recently than that, suggests very strongly that if you are going to have successful environmental outcomes, a prerequisite for that is the private ownership of property. Not always, and not in respect of all environmental outcomes, but um, the private ownership of property, um, and, and it also won't deliver if a utopia. There may be a desire for other forms of regulation on top of that, um, but private property is um, essential for good environmental outcomes. Why is that the case? Well, if something is not owned by anybody, we can effectively raise it to death. And you see that in some badly managed fisheries. So if nobody owns and controls the fisheries, the trawler owners have an incentive to simply um, extract as many fish from the sea as quickly as they can, because if they restrain themselves, they won't get the benefit of that restraint. On the other hand, if, this, if um, property rights in some way are established over fishing grounds, as happens, for example, in Iceland, the trawler owners become conservationists because they know that the less they fish today, the more fish they will be available for breeding and the more they will be able to fish in um, future years. And what is true of fishing grounds is true of forestries, is true of the land. The difference is, of course, that the land tends to be privately owned. But if we cannot, if we can imagine it not privately owned, uh, quickly the land would be exhausted of its fertility and goodness as well. I thought it was extremely surprising that there was no real consideration of these issues in Laudato Si. Indeed, the only statement was a somewhat negative statement that private property rights have to be restrained in order to protect the environment. Thank you for that overview, and you make the issue very clear. However, one of the things that we hear a lot at a think tank is, I understand the concept, but if I can't lay my hand on a particular instance, I don't know what to think about it. You provide an example in your essay. You take us to the island of Hispaniola, the Dominican Republic to the east, Haiti to the west, but a vast gulf separates them more than just the border. Tell our listeners, what does that look like? Okay. Yes, the, the difference between Haiti and the Dominican Republic is a well-rehearsed example. People sometimes fly over it and you can notice the difference. So lots of aerial photographs that are taken of the border area between the two countries. Now, Haiti is a state where, um, very sadly, um, there is very poor levels of governance um, and certainly very little protection of private property rights. And you can think of the border area on the Haiti side as really being a huge unowned commons. And on the Haiti side of the um, border between Haiti and the Dominican Republic, there is about 4% um, forest cover. On the Dominican Republic side, Dominican Republic is by no means a, a, a perfect state, but in terms of the rankings in relation to governance and protection of private property and, and so on, it comes up much better than um, Haiti. There is 41% um, cover of forestry. Now, these two countries are, of course, close together. It now appears that uh, more or less any country with an income per head of greater than $5,000 is actually reforesting. Europe is reforesting, the United States is reforesting. The reason, of course, for that is if you have the protection of property rights, it's worth investing in a forest because you can get the benefit from harvesting the wood, harvesting the other useful things that come from um, a forest, and you know that you will get the benefit. It won't be um, uh, plundered from you by the state or plundered from you by um, somebody else, and, and you'll have no recourse to a just court system. So in countries which are 
rich and prosperous and have good protection of property rights, we see reforestation, even in Russia, although to a more limited uh, extent there. Uh, also, it, it appears it's very difficult to measure these things sometimes in China. So private property rights are really vital if things are going to be cared for and looked after. Private property rights are very important, and you point out that there's also a cultural element here. People often present the culture clash as though it happens between East and West. You point out that the relevant culture clash that people often overlook is between British versus Spanish colonial culture. And you point out, perhaps with a bit of pride, that British culture seems to do somewhat better. What's the difference between these two cultures, and how do they affect the environment today? Well, many of the environmental um, situations that people are most worried about, of course, uh, relate to um, poorer countries, and a lot of those countries are former, former colonies of European countries. Now, bad environmental outcomes are almost certainly to some extent as a result of uh, poor governance and the poor protection of uh, property rights. But nevertheless, work has been done that suggests that those uh, groups of countries where you get better protection of um, property rights have performed better than those countries where you have worse protection of property rights. And the contrast in particular has been made between former uh, British colonies and former uh, Spanish colonies. And in the Spanish colony, systems of property rights have developed, or lack of property rights rather, where the state gets any benefit from using the goods of a forest. So nobody has any incentive to promote forest growth. They only have an incentive to try to chop down forests illegally so that they can create more land for crops and so on. Whereas in a lot of the former British colonies, there's been a much more mixed system which allows local people to actually benefit from the growth of, of forests and harvest them for economic purposes. So they have an incentive to nurture and uh, um, nurture those forests. And as a result of that, those forests have either thrived to a better extent or been diminished to a lesser extent. So yet another instance in which ideas have consequences. Some of our scrupulous or perhaps overly scrupulous listeners might wonder, is it permissible to comment upon or critique an official papal encyclical which by definition is part of the magisterium? Well, I'm not, I'm, I'm not a theologian, and I've listened to much debates um, uh, surrounding um, these kinds of issues. My understanding is that, of course, when the uh, church teaches on theological and moral uh, issues, of course it's permissible in academia to have an intelligent discussion about such issues. But when the church is teaching on the economic and political issues, we do have to accept in faith what the church says, but that doesn't mean to say that we can't contribute to a dialogue and critique uh, what is said. And of course, Pope Francis did ask for a dialogue uh, on the specific issue of um, uh, the environment and the, the contents of Laudato Si. And I'm trying to contribute to that dialogue, not by saying that anything he said was wrong. The title of the paper actually, um, which led to the article, is a paper in the journal The Independent Review, is Property Rights and Conservation the missing theme of Laudato Si. So what I'm saying, actually, is that there was more that could usefully have been said, indeed very usefully have been said, given all the economic work that's been done. So this was a conversation that Pope Francis hoped to have, and you were responding to the papal invitation to this dialogue. And I might add, we're grateful you're doing so in the pages of Religion and Liberty. Just off the air, you and I were discussing the work of one particular Nobel scholar whose work in theories might be close to Pope Francis' heart, and yet did not show up in the document. 
That leads to the question, are there models of ownership besides the traditional Western model that Pope Francis made such a negative comment about in Laudato Si? Um, yes, there are, without question. And Eleanor Ostrom won the Nobel Prize in Economics in 2009 for her work in these kinds of areas. In particular, she looked at poor countries, African and Asian countries in general, and looked at forests and fisheries. And she looked at how the community itself developed models of ownership and governance, which were, were not based on individualized property that we're used to in the West, but also were not based on state control. So if you take a forest area or a fishery, a local community would determine rules by which that fishery was exploited. And when those rules were broken, there were various sanctions uh, which were used. And now, this is a form of property right. It's just a form of property right which is administered by the community at large rather than by individuals. And she talked about polycentric systems of management. So the state might have some role, for example, in providing information, but things would be done uh, and better done at lower and lower levels. Uh, so ultimately, the local community would be the people who took responsibility for managing a resource. Now, these are systems you would expect quite close to Pope Francis's art, and they combine, if you like, the idea of solidarity amongst the community with subsidiarity, the community itself managing those natural resources. And it's interesting that Eleanor Ostrom's work has been welcomed across the political spectrum, and it is fairly uncontroversial. People who believe in free markets like it because it's a non-statist way of dealing with um, environmental problems and communitarian socialists like it because it's not individualistic um, and it's perfectly congruent with social teaching. And it's really quite surprising given the fact that she won a Nobel Prize in 2009 that her ideas were not somehow brought into the process of discussion, perhaps they were, um, but certainly not, not evident in the Laudato's the finished document. There are so many themes in this article I was hoping we would get a chance to talk about. For example, you draw out so clearly the connection between prosperity, which is inextricably linked with private property rights and free exchange, and conservation. Quoting from your article, you write, When a community has a choice between eating and deforestation, eating wins. In more technical terms, a clean environment is an income-elastic good. But we're going to have to leave that theme unexplored. Anyone who's so interested can read your article, Property Rights and Conservation, The Missing Theme of Laudato Si, in the 2018 issue of Religion and Liberty at Acton.org. Philip Booth, thank you for joining me for this issue of Transatlantic Intelligence. It's a pleasure. Thank you. And until our next segment here on Radio Free Acton, be sure to check out our website every day, Religion and Liberty Transatlantic. That's acton.org slash publications slash transatlantic. Communism took power in Cuba through deceit and intrigue in 1959. While Fidel Castro denied he was a communist, promising to restore democracy in the island, he began consolidating totalitarian rule and exporting revolution in Latin America and Africa. U.S.-Cuba policy would undergo dramatic changes between 1959 and the present, with consequences for the entire hemisphere. Join us on April 17 at Acton Institute to hear John Suarez, the program officer of the Washington, D.C.-based Center for Free Cuba, on communism in Cuba and U.S.-Cuba policy. You can register for this event at acton.org slash events.
going to turn the level of excitement down just a notch or maybe up a notch if you were a jazz fan because we're talking to ECM jazz vocalist and lyricist Norma Winstone. And she has a new album that dropped on February 16th, and it's getting rave reviews. Uh, some reviewers are actually calling it a career peak, and um, I don't know about that. I think it's a wonderful, wonderful album, but I think there are many peaks in a, in a career that's gone more than 50 years now. So, uh, hello, Norma. How are you today? Hello, Bruce. I'm very well. Well, thank you. Thank you so much for joining us. We had some technical issues earlier, and uh, I think we've got them overcome. So we can uh, really sit down and and delve into what I think is uh, an amazing career. And uh, you you started back in Ronnie Scott's club. That was one of your your first gigs during the swinging 60s. And tell me a little bit, why did you go the jazz direction when everybody else was going into uh, pop and rock? Um, I don't know, really. I, I think I always um, was drawn to uh, the music of like, the great American songbook, you know, Sinatra. I mean, my parents were big Sinatra fans, so I was sort of brought up um, listening to him and... Um, you know, and I still, I still think he's a, he's the greatest uh, male interpreter of the, of the popular song in my lifetime. Anyway, um, and but from there on, I I think I started just to hear other other music. You know, like my my parents were big, um, also big Fat Swallow fans, so um, that was another thing. I mean, that I didn't really even focus on the word jazz. It was just music that I liked, and um, they also liked opera, and I, you know, I liked classical music too. Uh, but most of what I heard was on the radio because we had no record playing equipment, and of course, people didn't have uh, tape recorders much in those days, and so it was very much whatever came on the radio. You know, I would focus on, and um, and and. I, I suppose at that time you would have heard more of what you call jazz than you do now, actually. And um, in, in a previous conversation, you and I discussed your affinity with uh, Miles Davis's "Kind of Blue" and how that influenced you quite a bit. That you envisioned putting lyrics or your voice to some of the music that uh, came out of that that classic jazz album. Yes, I guess I heard Miles um, when I was in my teens, early teens. And um, I, I, it's funny because, I, I mean, I'd heard other, other jazz, but uh, as I say, never really focused on it as any, any different kind of music. It was just music I liked. And I heard Ella and Dave Brubeck and loved Paul Desmond because, I, you know, I just thought I, what he played was very singable. Then I heard Miles, the kind of blue came out. And it's when I heard that, that I really thought, hmm, I've been singing standards, and you know, um, just to myself. I mean, I wasn't, I wasn't anywhere near professional then. It's just a, a dream I had to sing, and um, and I just thought well, I would love to be involved in music like this. I think possibly because it was modal, and it was it was open, and um, I thought perhaps easier to improvise on than bebop, which is 
teacher. Right. Well, you you actually employ your voice in in a remarkable fashion on, on some of your early recordings. Uh, I'm recalling a collaboration you did with Kenny Wheeler, where you aren't scatting, but you are using your voice pretty much in a, in a, the fashion of its own type of instrument, where you're you're not singing words. But you're you're not doing the rat a tat of of a scat singer, but you you are actually uh, using your voice to blend in between the instruments and sometimes rising above them. Yes, well, well I think um, you know I, I of course when I first heard voices improvising it was um, Ella Fitzgerald you know doing her scat singing, and I loved it and I, I learned it all you know, from listening to records, but I just felt somehow that well that kind of of um, enunciating the syllables that she used would never go with with the kind of music that that I became interested in, and of course when Kenny asked me to Kenny Wheeler asked me to uh, to be a part of uh, his music for his big band, um, I didn't really think of the voice as an instrument which would stand out from the rest. I thought, well, all the other instruments blend. You know, the voice has to blend. So it's sometimes I think a feeling that it's there rather than being able to, rather than being in your face, you know. Um, and um, and I always wanted to blend. It just seemed to be a natural thing to try to blend with, with the instruments in the band. And I was thrilled to do it. Well, at, 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 at what point in time did you uh, determine that you were going to be uh, a lyricist? Because... Uh, the, the past ten years or so, just going through your 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 catalog, the the past week, I've been picking up the the lyrics that you have written, and some of them are quite astounding. So, when when did you decide to uh, start uh, taking pre existing works from uh, such names as Ralph Towner and, and uh, what have you, and putting your own words to their music? Well, I think it was um, when I wanted to expand my repertoire, you know, from, from just um, the, the standard songs that I had been singing. Although, of course, when I met, I met Kenny Wheeler and John Taylor, they were writing their own music. And I did occasionally put words to, to their pieces. And Kenny asked me to do one, I think, uh, back in 1973, when we made an album called Song for Someone. And he said, could I write words to one of the pieces? And... I hadn't really done that up till then, but it was it was more or less just I, I didn't know anybody else that was writing lyrics, and I didn't know if I could, but I'd always loved poetry, and I just found that I, I, I would hear pieces like by Ralph Town or Egberto Gismonti, Steve Swallow, and, and they would strike me as as possible songs, you know, um, and so I thought, well, I'll try to write lyrics, and Actually, the lyrics seem to come out of the music. I always have to feel something about uh, some music before I, I think, could there be words to this? Because it's more or less thinking, well, are there words here in this music? And that's usually where they come from, the feeling that I get from listening to a piece of music. Um, that's why I, I always write to existing pieces um, rather than writing words and having them set. Well, I, I think that there's a, an amazing thoughtfulness to your treatment of other singers, 
or uh, other songwriters and other other lyricists. And, and I'm thinking of uh, your previous album, Dance Without Answer, where you cover Fred Neal's Everybody's Talking, uh, which everybody knows by the Harry Nielsen version, which I, I think is a, a, a wonderful reimagining of the song. And one of my all-time favorite singer-songwriters is uh, Nick Drake, and you do Time of No Reply, and I think you do an amazing version of that. So why don't we uh, take a break and listen to just a little bit of your version of Nick Drake's Time of No Reply. Okay. The sun went down and the crowd went home I was left by the roadside all alone I turned to speak as they went by This was the time of no reply The time of no reply is calling me to stay there's no hello okay this is an, an amazing rendering of of nick drake's lyrics and i i think you do a, a, a tremendous job on it what 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 led you to the music of nick drake because not you don't normally listen to nick drake and say oh i think i will apply this to a jazz setting um well i had actually at one point recorded um uh riverman uh, by him, and, you know, and I've heard. Um, yes, I suppose it is. Yes, um, I don't know, but I'd, I, I just when we were try, thinking of, of tunes for this, the album uh, "Dance Without Answer," we decided to investigate some more contemporary pieces. I mean, not not that he's actually contemporary any longer, but you know, some of the other pieces more con, more contemporary. You know, not so much. Um, if we're finding existing songs, not so much going back to the Great American Songbook, but um, just finding some more contemporary songs, which we did, you know, with the um, Madonna song um, that we covered. Well, let's let's step back a little bit from uh, the the songwriting aspect before we uh, delve deeply into your new album, Descansado, and. Tell me how you first came to be involved with ECM Records, uh, which, uh, for the unaware listeners out there, is one of the the, the foremost jazz labels that came out in the uh, late 60s, early 70s, and it was the brainchild of Manfred Eicher, who is more or less the guy. He's the guy who produces nearly all the releases and there's just been a tremendous roster of artists that have come and gone and come and stayed on that label and uh norma you're one of them so tell me how uh, you came into the orbit of ecm in the first place um well um i think there was seemed to be not much happening recording wise in england in the in the 70s and mid 70s you know, I'd had an album called Edge of Time, which was on a, one of the offshoots of the Decca label. Um, and a few other jazz musicians that I knew, there were, there were independent labels springing up and they recorded for them. But then I think everything seemed to die down again and there wasn't, seemed to, doesn't seem to be any interest much in recording English artists. And so John Taylor and I thought we'd make a duo tape and um and he had a list of 
of people to go and see. He made appointments to, to see people from different record labels. Um, not in England, though, in Germany. <laughs> and, of course, top of the list was ECM, Manfred Eicher. We'd heard the, you know, the ECM albums of Keith Jarrett and, and Young Garberick. And, of course, Kenny Wheeler had recorded with Keith Jarrett. He, did, he recorded a, an album called New High. And um, that, so Manfred Eicher was very well aware of, of Kenny and through Kenny he was aware of John Taylor where he, that's how John managed to get an appointment with him and he played him various things but just before John went that, that day he just got a synthesizer um, Synthi AKS I think it was called and he was playing around with it and he came up with a loop and he said to me, well, just improvise over this. You know, stuck a microphone, I don't know, in, in it somehow. And I just recorded an improvisation over this loop. And when he played that to Manfred, I mean, Manfred liked the other stuff, which was a mixture of John's, um, some of John's compositions, my words, the odd standard. Um, and, uh, but when he heard this, he said, oh, I can hear a flugel with the voice. Flugelhorn, um, and uh, so he said, "Why don't we bring Kenny in on it?" So that's how Azimuth, the group Azimuth, was born, and um, it went on from there. You know, we made I think five albums um, with that group for the label, and I, I did other things as well you know, with other people, and. Um, so that's how it started. There was quite there was a dip in the middle when I, I didn't seem to, um, come up with anything that interested Manfred until he heard this group, the group that I have now, the trio, and um, he recorded us. And since then, he's, you know, he's continued to record us. So it's been a long, a long while since the first one. I think 1977 was the first album we recorded with Azimuth that label. Well, that's a great segue into the new album, Descansado, which is uh, songs for films. And um, I'm going to uh, jump to uh, the song Descansado that features your lyrics. And uh, I I, I blush to do this to the authoress of such wonderful lyrics, but um, I'm going to give it a shot. A street of distant lives where once She stopped the traffic with a smile, and as if it were today, the air is warm and heady for a while. Tomorrow becomes today. How quickly we're swept away. Let's let's hear uh, a professional do that. A street of distant lives Where once she stopped the traffic with a smile As if it were today The air is warm And heavy for a while it, That's heart-stopping. I think, I think it's absolutely wonderful. And tell me, um, the, the, the songs on this album all come from soundtracks, and there is a wide variety of soundtracks. It's not something that uh, you, you can just pick and choose one era because you're going all the way back to... Lawrence Olivier films from 1946 to uh, uh, to uh, Taxi Driver 
soundtrack in 1976. And then uh, Il Postino. What was the idea for this? Where did this come from? Well, the idea for, for doing songs for films, you mean. Um, well, it was really Glauco Venier, pianist's idea, because he, he had a great love of um, film music. I mean, he's Italian, and of course the Italians have come up with some wonderful um, film music. Of course, Ennio Morricone, one of, you know, we do one of his pieces too, but a lesser-known one. And um, uh, so he said, well, why don't we try to see if we can just find things that we like and see if we can um, just take them and just make them fit our sound, you know, to see what we can do with them. And it's not like just uh, copying the way they're done in the films. I mean, Taxi Driver, for instance, is our version is completely different uh, from the, the you know the saxophone on the on the soundtrack, um, which I love. But you know, having seen the film, um, it, it left me with a very very sort of dark feeling. And uh, I came up with some right. kind I of think dark I believe work. that was Tom Scott from LA Express who did that on on the soundtrack, hmm? the, the original Sorry. soundtrack for Taxi Driver. Who did? Sorry, Tom Scott. Oh yes, yeah, Tom Scott. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes, um, he did. Yeah, and and um, but uh, of course our version is is very different. We didn't really want anything to sound like a a, a copy. I mean, what would be the point, you know, of, of the way it was done originally? And um, and of course it had no words. So I did watch the film though, just especially to get the real flavour of it and to you know, come up with some lyrics. Well, that's about all we have time for today. We're, we're speaking with Norma Winstone, who is gracious enough to call us from her home in England. And her new album is Desconsado, Songs for Films. It's on the ECM label. Highly recommended. It's getting terrific and wonderful reviews, but that's uh, n- nothing too uncommon for Norma Winstone's releases because they, they are all cherished by individuals who are familiar with her music. So for Upstream... This week, I'm Bruce Walker, and we'll talk to you next week. And that wraps up today's episode. If you'd like to learn more about the Acton Institute, visit our website at acton, A-C-T-O-N dot O-R-G. Also, if you'd like to contact our podcast team or if you have questions for the Acton Institute that you would like to hear answered in future segments of the podcast, you can always leave us a message at 888-705-4180 or email us at rfa at acton.org. This episode was produced by Caroline Roberts and edited by Nathan Moore.